You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Warning. This podcast contains explicit language and details acts of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Los Angeles County has a reputation for being a pretty progressive area, but that's not really the case, especially up north. The Antelope Valley, which makes up the northern part of the county, is very desolate. To get there from the city, you need to take a winding highway through jagged mountains on one of the most dangerous freeways in the state. On the other side, miles of desert with relatively new suburbs roll on and on. From 1850 to 1950, the Antelope Valley was a sleepy collection of small towns around the hubs of Palmdale and Lancaster. The population was nearly 90% white. Black families were relegated to the Sun Valley area because of racist redlining. But in the 1980s, demographics changed. In that decade, the AV's growth ballooned as white families from Los Angeles resettled in the desert as part of white flight. A decade later, people of color chasing low real estate prices and seeking an escape from the city followed behind them. But some of the Antelope Valley's new residents who moved in search of a quiet life were met with violent racism. And some of the people behind those incidents were members of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. This is a tradition of violence, a history of deputy gangs inside the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. People working for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Stations in the Antelope Valley are often lifelong residents. Parts of the valley are extremely remote, and the department uses what they call resident deputies, sworn personnel who live in the area, to patrol it. In 1990, David Lynn, executive director of the Police Misconduct Lawyers Referral Service, investigated a white supremacist deputy gang called the Wayside Whiteys inside of the Pitches Detention Center. He spotted a racist symbol just outside of the jail. Right on the other side of the freeway was a gas station liquor store, and they were flying this huge Confederate flag. 
And I took photos of it and started sharing it, and the flag disappeared. Oh, it's very bizarre. Very bizarre. That year, 26-year-old Clyde L. Crawford was beaten by a group of deputies, including a man named John Bones. As they beat Clyde L., they yelled out that they were in the Wayside Whitey's gang. Clydell's story was featured in the first episode of this podcast. And I'm yelling and screaming for my life. And I can see inmates out the win- in the windows. And some of the inmates were yelling, let uh, them go. But they couldn't do too much stop. And they were yelling, trying to get, you know, trying to help the best way they can. They couldn't do much. So I remember feeling my leg snap. Clydell filed a civil rights lawsuit against L.A. County that was settled for just $60,000. It's not clear if the deputies who beat him up were ever disciplined. But we do know that following the attack, John Bones was later promoted and then went on to kill someone. On June 27, 2013, just after 7 a.m., now Sergeant John Bones crept up to the front door of a home on a barren desert street in Little Rock, California. Bones and Detective Patrick Hobbs were executing a search warrant, but according to a legal filing, Hobbs got the warrant by lying. He said that the owner of the home, Eugene Mallory, an 80-year-old white man, was using the place as a meth lab. The sheriff's department had already been out to the property with code inspectors, and they knew that there was no meth lab there. Bones, Hobbs, and a group of deputies entered the house and made their way through the space quickly. In just under a minute, they came into the back room where Eugene had been sleeping. Bones didn't have a body camera on, but he was recording audio. He told Eugene to, quote, "'Come on out here. Let me see your hands first, please.'" Two seconds later, a deputy yelled, whoa, then came seven gunshots. Bones shot Eugene six times with an H&K MP5 9mm submachine gun. He died on the spot. Bones says that when he got to the bedroom doorway, Eugene stood up and raised a Ruger 22 caliber semi-automatic handgun in his right hand. The same handgun was located in Eugene's right hand, and it's important to mention that holding a gun in your hand in your home is not a crime. Bones' recording revealed that he never commanded Eugene to drop his weapon. The office of LA County District Attorney Jackie Lacey found that Bones acted lawfully in self-defense and defense of others when he killed Eugene. The county settled Eugene's widow's civil lawsuit after two years of litigation for $1.6 million, paid for by taxpayers. Deputy gangs like the Wayside Whiteys weren't the only ones carrying out harmful policing practices against the community. People of color have complained about the local deputies' lack of action toward racist crimes since the 1990s. Flyers urging whites to join the white Aryan resistance a neo-Nazi and white supremacist organization, were found in 12 packs of beer at supermarkets in Palmdale in 1993. When a group of black children tried to walk home on February 17, 1995, they were attacked by a group of as many as 10 skinheads, according to the sheriff's department. The department did not classify the incident as a hate crime. 
On February 21st, 1995, three black adults and one 11-month-old child parked outside of Antelope Valley High School were severely injured by broken glass after a group of teenage white supremacists fired into their car window. Following the incident, Linda Thompson Taylor, president of the Antelope Valley branch of the NAACP, told the LA Times that the sheriff's department did not always classify incidents her office referred to the department as racially motivated. Four months later, the Dominguez family and their dog were spending the weekend of June 10th away from their home in Palmdale. Just after one o'clock in the morning that Sunday, their house burned down. Authorities found swastikas spray-painted on the remaining structure. Two self-proclaimed white supremacists beat a homeless black man to death behind a fast food restaurant that November in order to get lightning bolt tattoos. They were charged in only the second ever hate crime in LA County history. Todd Jordan, a black teenager, was stabbed by a group of white supremacist students on the baseball field at Antelope Valley High School on his way to class on the morning of December 8th. In 1996, Marcus Cotton, a black man, was slashed with a machete by two men who yelled, white power, during the attack. The men spat on his 16-year-old cousin, who was with him. Another group of white supremacists chased Howard Garfield McClendon, a 32-year-old black man, into the desert near the outskirts of Palmdale in July 1997. They beat him to death with a baseball bat. The men had spent the night driving around, looking for a black person to kill. Howard's remains were found in October of 1997, but the LA County Sheriff's Department didn't solve the case until 2004. The demographics of the Antelope Valley continued to shift as its cities grew. By 2000, the area was 49% white, and the Black and Latina populations had grown to 13 and 29.5%, respectively. Black families that were relocating to the AV with Section 8 vouchers received an onslaught of racism. Section 8 is a federal program that allows counties and cities across the United States to pay rental assistance to low-income people. In order to participate, you need to agree to a set of so-called family obligations, like telling the housing authority who you will be living with and agreeing to yearly inspections. The number of Black Section 8 holders in the Antelope Valley doubled between 2000 and 2008. And between 2004 and 2011, the LA County Sheriff's Department dedicated a significant amount of resources to harassing them. Some of the deputies participating in the harassment shared matching tattoos, according to a Department of Justice report. A study from the Center for Juvenile Justice found that this deputy gang called themselves the Rattlesnakes. Their tattoo is of a skull and a snake, and members can be found at both department stations in the Antelope Valley. Deputy Oleg Poliski, who worked at the Palmdale station, testified that he received a tattoo from another deputy gang called the Cowboys. That gang's tattoo is of a skeleton wearing a star-shaped badge and a cowboy hat and holding a pistol. Poliski said that he got the tattoo with a group of other deputies who then went out with a larger group of personnel who also had the tattoo. Poliski claimed that the cowboy's tattoo signified that, quote, no person has less rights than any other person, and that, quote, you treat the public equally and without bias. He did not say how either of these ideas related to a skull or a cowboy. In 2004, 
The then-Lancaster station captain Carl Dealey insinuated to reporters that Section 8 voucher holders were gang members. Referring to their families, Dealey said, quote, A lot of the time, they're trying to do a good thing. Their nephew from South Central is getting in trouble, so they send him up here. He rewards them by continuing his gang activity. That year, the Housing Authority of Los Angeles County teamed up with LASD in a Memoranda of Understanding to hire and pay for voucher and fraud investigators. All of the fraud investigators were former deputies. They used department email addresses. A current Palmdale deputy even coordinated with a district attorney investigator specifically tasked with developing criminal fraud cases against voucher holders in the city for breaking the program's rules. That meant that in the Antelope Valley, deputies accompanied housing authority inspectors on virtually every yearly visit to Section 8 houses between 2004 and 2007. No other L.A. County inspectors followed that procedure. The LASD gave the Department of Justice 157 files about contact with voucher holders, and less than half of the reports gave a reason for the deputy even being there. Only one quarter of the reports justified the number of deputies that responded. The Department of Justice found this agreement, quote, was carried out with the intent that African-American voucher holders leave Antelope Valley. In 2007, a Lancaster Station sergeant conducted a study that found, quote, Section 8 housing did not change the crime statistics within their respective communities. This conclusion did little to impact the discriminatory treatment of Black residents. For example, Arrest for obstruction of justice, or impeding a cop from doing their job, at the Lancaster and Palmdale stations made up 25% of all department arrests, and were higher than the number at every other station. In 81% of the uses of force reviewed by the DOJ, where the only charge was obstruction-related, Black and Latina people were involved. In 2007, about a quarter of those arrests resulted in a reported use of force. During her 2008 campaign, Sherry Marquez ran for the Lancaster City Council on an anti-crime platform that conflated the issue of crime and the voucher program. Her campaign materials stated Sherry Marquez was the, quote, best choice to fight crime in Section 8. Marquez was elected. During a February 19, 2009 Section 8 commission meeting, Marquez stated, quote, unfortunately, Those that receive the vouchers do not stay in the city of Los Angeles. They migrate to the Antelope Valley. Lancaster will soon be inundated with another group. In Palmdale, the city manager commented that the city needed to be, quote, as vigilant as possible, enforcing program rules. Another Palmdale councilman stated that he wanted to make sure that voucher holders did not, quote, swarm the valley. The fact that there was no relation to the presence of Section 8 holders and crime rates was largely ignored. In August 2009, a statistician for the city of Lancaster reasserted that conclusion and found that in certain neighborhoods, voucher program households might actually keep crime rates lower. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department continued to dedicate resources to investigating program participants in the Antelope Valley. Meanwhile, hate crimes against that same population began to rise, sometimes fueled by LASD action. As of 2010, 
the Antelope Valley had the highest rate of hate crimes in Los Angeles County. By that time, 73% of the voucher-holding households in Lancaster and 69% in Palmdale were Black. That year, on August 25th, the first Methodist Episcopal Church in Palmdale, which had a mostly Black congregation, was firebombed. Facebook provided a large platform for local racists to communicate and find targets for their hate. A page called I Hate Section 8 housed dozens of rants from citizens. Deputies were active on the page, too. In 2010, an LASD deputy took pictures of luxury cars in a home's garage during a Section 8 compliance check. The deputy sent those photos to the administrator of the I Hate Section 8 Facebook page. The family's home was vandalized with the message, I hate you Section 8, you fucking and their son had urine thrown on him as the perpetrator yelled, dirty Section 8 That family ended up relocating from Palmdale back to the city of LA out of fear of more harassment. At least 180 people complained about deputy behavior between August 2010 and 2011, but only one of those complaints was elevated to the level that could have resulted in any formal discipline. In fact, several complaints that clearly involved racial discrimination were not properly handled, according to the Department of Justice. One person said that a deputy called her a, quote, pickaninny. Her complaint was not marked as one for discrimination, and the watch commander elected to resolve it via conflict resolution, meaning there would be no discipline. In another incident, even though there was video of the deputy using racist language, the person complaining saying so discredited the allegation. The DOJ also found that the deputy's versions of the events were credited above the civilians. Without a recording or the deputy admitting to the behavior, other deputies would band together and say they, quote, did not hear the offensive language. On August 19, 2011, the Department of Justice informed the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department that the federal government would be investigating the Antelope Valley stations for a pattern or practice of violations of the Constitution or laws of the United States. That investigation consisted of a DOJ team reviewing over 35,000 documents completing a six-day-long visit of the Antelope Valley stations and hosting community meetings. The investigation found that deputies in the area were stopping and searching Black and Latina people in the Antelope Valley in a way that indicated that it was racially motivated. In Lancaster, that meant stops were 38.5% higher for those groups than if there were no racial differences. In Palmdale, it was 33%. When Black people were stopped in cars, they were personally searched at a rate that was 10 to 15% higher than the rate of white people. Black drivers in the Antelope Valley also saw their cars searched at an 8 to 14% higher rate. Black pedestrians were also 35% more likely than white people to be stopped for things like jaywalking, which also led to them being searched. The DOJ also found that the Antelope Valley deputies had a habit of asking people of color whether they were on probation or parole before a search, which constituted unlawful discrimination. One deputy told a DOJ investigator that he, quote, always asks everyone he stops about their probation or parole status to, quote, get into cars, as in to search them. 
A training officer told the investigator that he instructs all deputy trainees to do the same thing during every stop. Deputies also detain people without just cause. The Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution requires deputies to have reasonable suspicion. Things that are not reasonable suspicion, according to U.S. law. Nervousness, furtive gestures, prior arrests, presence in a high-crime area, or the fact that the suspect does not appear to fit the general ethnic makeup of the area. Quote, common conduct exhibited by the population at large is also insufficient to establish reasonable suspicion. Department policy also requires deputies to articulate the factual basis of any stop in their patrol log. The DOJ found that Antelope Valley deputies routinely detain people, including domestic violence victims, in the backseats of patrol cars without any individual assessment of danger or suspicion, which is a violation of the law. They also pepper-sprayed people who were nonviolent or handcuffed. In Palmdale, two deputies detained two people in the backseat of a patrol car for a broken license plate taillight. The deputies did not document this detention in their log. A Lancaster deputy did a pat-down search of a black woman after stopping her for failing to use her headlights and having tinted windows, then put her in the back of his car. He said later during an investigation that he did it because the woman was upset. People detained by deputies were also assaulted by them. The DOJ found two things that stood out the use of unreasonable and or retaliatory force against people in handcuffs, and the unnecessary use of punches to the head. The team found, quote, numerous instances, unquote, where the inappropriateness of the force used was apparent from the deputy's own report. The department also wasn't responding to the inappropriate uses of force. The DOJ team found a pattern of reluctance to hold deputies accountable even when there were serious policy violations. They concluded that the Antelope Valley's deputies were violating the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment, the Fair Housing Act, and Title VI, writing, quote, LASD's Antelope Valley deputies engage in a pattern of practice of unconstitutional law enforcement activity that reflects unlawful bias and that violates individuals' rights not to be subjected to unreasonable searches and seizures, including the use of unreasonable force. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Wyatt Waldron is local to the Antelope Valley and graduated from Quartz Hill High School. Before joining the LA County Sheriff's Department in 2007, Waldron was a corporal in the U.S. Marine Corps. He served from 2002 through 2006, and between January 12th and July 31st, 2005, he participated in Operation Iraqi Freedom. He was given a silver star for his role in the so-called Father's Day Massacre on June 19, 2005, where he personally killed five people and led his unit to kill 16 more. One of his company members told a reporter, quote, he's a crazy bastard and he's awesome at what he does. By October of 2015, Waldron had been with the department for about seven years. In that time, it appears he became a high-ranking member in a deputy gang. And during a weekend camping trip, he allegedly tried to shoot the membership tattoo off of another member, Travis Johnson. Travis is the son of Bob Johnson, the newly elected sheriff of Santa Clara County, who I mentioned in episode three on the Grim Reapers. Randall Higgins, a former deputy, says that the older Johnson is a member of the Grim Reapers gang. Bob denies this. The weekend of October 17th, Travis Johnson, Wyatt Waldron, and other deputy gang affiliates headed out for a camping trip in Dove Springs, California. It's an off-roading area just north of Red Rocks State Park. Johnson thought the trip was to relax, but in reality, the other guys were pissed at him. My sources inside LASD tell me that Johnson made a change to his deputy gang tattoo that wasn't approved by gang leadership. Anyone who makes an unauthorized change is punished. Out in the desert, the deputies allegedly held Johnson down while Waldron fired several rounds of his off-duty weapon into the ground. Then he tried to burn the tattoo off of Johnson's leg with the hot barrel of the gun. When that didn't work, Waldron fired the gun directly at the tattoo, leaving a gaping, bleeding hole. If you're really brave, a photo of the injury is available with my story for Knock L.A. Johnson was transported from the site of the shooting to the Antelope Valley Medical Center in Lancaster, about an hour away, in a private vehicle. Legacy media outlets picked up the story in 2015 and reported the shooting as simply a, quote, accidental discharge of a weapon. And that was the official story until I investigated earlier this year for Knock LA. The LASD said in 2015 that the Internal Affairs and Homicide Bureaus would investigate, along with the Kern County Sheriff's Department, which is responsible for the area where the shooting happened. The Office of the Inspector General, which monitors the LA County Sheriff's Department, looked into the shooting as part of a 2021 report. Several issues with the investigation were noted. For example, after the shooting, one deputy drove home from the site of the incident with Waldron's gun hidden in a compartment in his trailer. He said he couldn't remember who gave it to him or securing it in his trailer. 
But he did remember specific details, like that he took the gun for, quote, safekeeping, and the position of the weapon's slide when it was handed to him. Once he got home, the gun was given to a third deputy, who finally gave it to investigators. Waldron and Johnson were interviewed by a Kern County Sheriff's deputy right after the shooting, but they didn't speak to LASD's internal investigators until three months later. By this time, according to the Inspector General, the story had changed. The Inspector General concluded that Waldron admitted to the internal affairs investigators that he lied to the criminal investigator about the shooting. The lies were reported to Waldron's unit commander, who did nothing. Waldron kept his job and was even promoted to sergeant last year by Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Inspector General Max Huntsman said to me in a statement this year, quote, The photograph and the allegations around it require thorough outside investigation. Because the LASD has chosen to disregard its obligations to cooperate under California law and instead opts to investigate the investigators, a tactic we've seen them escalate to frightening levels in recent days, the fight to eliminate gang corruption will be a long one. The Cowboys' deputy gang continued to come under scrutiny, but no significant action was taken against them. As I discussed in episode 6, Deputy Jason Zabala's tattoo appears to link him to both the Regulators and the Cowboys. It's of a skeleton wearing a star-shaped badge and a cowboy hat and holding a pistol. That's for the Cowboys. Next to the skeleton is a tombstone displaying the Century Station logo, which is a diamond-shaped crest with Nordic-appearing letters spelling out C-E-N. The Roman numeral 21 is below. The tattoo itself is number 140. Zabala killed two people in just 18 months. Terry Lafitte, a father of three, who Zabala followed home and shot in his backyard in front of his family. And Johnny Martinez, a young father in the midst of a mental health crisis. The Lafitte family filed a civil lawsuit in response to the killing, saying that the deputies had violated Terry's civil rights when they killed him. The case was settled in 2017 for $1.5 million, funded by taxpayers. Sabala gave sworn testimony three times during the litigation and talked about his tattoo. Just a little over a year after the civil case wrapped up, Zabala was charged with perjury. As you've learned in this podcast, it's common for LA County to hire private law firms to represent them. When that happens, they give deputies involved in the case notice of the decision and let them know that the attorney will be representing them as an individual as well as the county. But according to the LA District Attorney's Office, Zabala was never told his attorney also represented LA County. According to the attorney, Zabala's explanation about the meaning of the number 140 in his tattoo was, quote, different than what he had said in the deposition testimony. In his deposition, he said that the number represented that he was the 140th person to get the design by the artist. He also stated that the tattoo showed solidarity with other deputies at Century Station and the pride he took in being a deputy. But District Attorney Jackie Lacey chose to not prosecute Zabala for this. In the investigation summary, the DA's office wrote that, quote, assuming he gave a false explanation as to the meaning of 140, insufficient evidence exists 
to show it was material to a determination of whether or not the deputies were legally justified in using deadly force against Terry Lafitte. Remember, it's been alleged that to get into some of these deputy gangs, a deputy has to kill someone. Longtime deputies in the Antelope Valley were promoted through area station leadership. From that position, they oversaw a culture that led to the creation of a white supremacist Ku Klux Klan-themed deputy gang inside of the North County Correctional Facility. The North County Correctional Facility, or NCCF, is one of four jails inside the Peter J. Pitches Detention Center. It's the same jail where Clyde L. Crawford was beaten by a group of deputies claiming to be in a gang called the Wayside Whiteys. The newer, younger gang is called IPA, an acronym with a double meaning. It references both the inmate processing area and is also an acronym for Inclusive Province Akia. Inclusive seems to be a nod to the fact that the group is believed to have Black and Latino members. A report to the Illinois State Legislature on the workings of the Klan defines a province as a territorial division of a realm, or a state. Akia is Klan shorthand for a Klansman I am. To join, a deputy must shave their head and be tasered by other IPA members. Membership in IPA is restricted to male deputies. Custody assistants are not allowed to join, but they can associate with members, which comes with favorable treatment. I spoke to a former deputy who saw IPA functioning out in the open while they were working at NCCF. They didn't want to go on tape for fear of retaliation, even though they are no longer with the department. They said that the gang subjected them to a hostile and dangerous work environment, regularly engaged in misconduct, denied inmates food, and violently assaulted them. They even saw an IPA member taser a prospect or prospective member while on duty. The deputy told me that IPA members, quote, looked down on people, pretty much treated everybody like trash, whether you were a coworker or not. There are training officers that you couldn't ask a question to. They wouldn't help you. It's like you kind of trust the inmates more than your partners. The deputy says IPA members subject other deputies who do not buy into the gang's behavior to harassment, like not getting lunch or relief breaks from standing. The gang also reports to personnel working at the Antelope Valley stations about who is going along with their agenda. People who don't are passed over for promotion to patrol and forced to keep working in the jail. They're also ignored when they radio for help. Former deputy Angel Reynosa watched this behavior up close. So everyone had to shave your head. And I knew of a, a trainee that was in the 600 building who didn't shave his head. And I would always hear all the training officers talk crap about him, saying, oh, like, what's up with this guy? Like, Who does he think he is? And they wouldn't help him at all. They wouldn't go to his station. They think they responded slow to one of his fights that he had. And it was just because he didn't shave his head. They would put us in a simulation, basically, where they would put one of the training officers that we didn't know yet in a, a jumpsuit, basically, all blue suit. And they would pretend that they're escorting him or something. And then they would have the, the training officer who's wearing the blues fight to see what we would do. It's not in policy. It's not something that's taught prior to you getting there. It's just something they came up with on their own. Angel says that he wanted to become a deputy sheriff to help out his community. 
He applied to the department after attending a job fair while he was a college student. I remember my mom told me, don't do it. She told me, like, finish school. As a, like a kid, you think you could clean up crime just by being one person. And, you know, once you get in, you kind of see it's a little different. After completing the academy, new deputies work in the jails. Angel was assigned to work at NCCF. He noticed that the so-called shot callers in IPA had a considerable amount of influence over which deputies were selected to go out to patrol and where they went. They would send like a kind of like a progress report of the person that's going out. So say someone's going out to Palmdale. The people at the jails have buddies that work at Palmdale. You know, they might be training officers or someone who's been there for a couple of years. They'll ask the jail, the people in the jail, hey, what do you think about this guy or this girl? And they would give their opinions on them about, oh, we don't like him or we like him or, you know, give him a, a tough time. I remember before I left, one of the training officers was like, oh, I'm going to find out how you're doing. We were joking around, but I know he was serious because I forgot what we were saying, but he was like, oh, like, hey, don't say that. You know, I know people up there will give you a tough time. And in reality, you know, we could have been saying it in a joking manner, but it's it's the truth. They wanted to say anything. Hey, give this guy a tough time. You know, it's, it's easy. It's, they could do it very easily. One of those shot callers was Deputy Conrad Thiem. Thiem has a history with violence. On August 31st, 2017, he was arrested in Sonoma County for domestic violence. The responding police officer noted in his report that he heard a woman yell, quote, leave me alone, stop hitting me, before he got to the door. When the officer spoke to the woman, he saw her shirt was ripped open. She said, quote, my jaw hurts, I can't feel my face. It doesn't appear that theme was ever charged and he was never disciplined by LASD. At the time of the domestic violence incident, Thiem was assigned to the Lost Hills Station in Calabasas. In November, he assaulted 61-year-old Xenathon Sanders during a traffic stop. According to the civil rights lawsuit he filed afterwards, Xenathon had left his friend's house after an argument with their roommate. He thinks the guy called the cops in retaliation. Thiem is alleged to have stopped Xenathon by shining a spotlight in his eyes and commanding him to exit over a loudspeaker. When Xenathon tried to lay down in the street like he was being told, Thiem tackled him. Then, Thiem pinned his back to the street and continued to smash his head into the pavement. Thiem ignored EMTs on scene and didn't let them provide medical care to Xenathon. Instead, Xenathon was arrested for resisting arrest and had his car searched. He was taken to the ER, then held at a jail facility until four o'clock in the morning. In his report, Thiem said that Xenathon was detained at gunpoint for assault with a deadly weapon and was backed up by three other deputies who responded to the call. Charges were filed against Xenathon for resisting arrest but were dropped by the district attorney's office. Xenathon's lawyer told me that the case was settled several months ago but that his client has still not been paid. He said he had no idea about Thiem's prior violence and would be renegotiating the settlement. Just under two years later, Thiem was responsible for a brawl breaking out at NCCF that resulted in multiple injuries among incarcerated men and deputies. I was able to obtain footage of the entire incident. 
On March 12, 2019, just before 1 p.m., Thiem and three other deputies responded to a call. They handcuffed a man and removed him from his unit. As Thiem walks by a row of bunks, he stops to speak to a group of incarcerated men. Then he reaches in and begins punching one of the men standing between the bunk beds. One of the other deputies joins in. The third deputy was left to escort the incarcerated man alone, and when he realized he was by himself, turned around to join in the punching upstairs. But he was hit in the face by another inmate. He fell and was quickly swarmed by incarcerated people. Upstairs, Thiem, who, according to arrest records, is six foot three and 230 pounds, tackles the man he was beating to the floor and lays his body on the man's neck. More than 50 LASD personnel responded to the brawl. According to deputies working at the jail at the time, Thiem was not disciplined for his role in starting it. Months later, several alleged IPA members who responded to the scene were selected to move on to patrol in the Antelope Valley. On February 8, 2020, a student at Pepperdine University in Malibu was sexually assaulted by a man that had broken in to her apartment. According to the current report, Thiem responded to the call for help with another deputy and immediately victim-shamed the woman, saying, quote, I smell pot. Are you sure you're not imagining it? The deputies dismissed the assault as, quote, trespassing and didn't bother gathering security footage. Angel Reynosa worked with Thiem while at NCCF. The interactions with Thiem and others gave him a crash course on how LASD treated new recruits and the community. In 2019, Angel was selected to move out to patrol at the Lancaster station. A longtime deputy from the station gave him and the other new personnel a lecture before they started. He was very aggressive towards us saying that, you know, if we don't want to be here, if we don't put the effort, get the fuck out. Like, And he said that that's where I heard first heard the, the term paper fuck. Like, I will paper fuck you. Basically a term which means get every call for services and you'll, you'll end up with maybe 12 reports by the end of your shift that you will not finish by the end of your shift before the 24-hour period where you have to come back. So you have maybe seven from that day and then the next day they'll do it again. And it's within policy technically because, you know, they could say it's training. We want to give them the most calls. But in reality, they want to put you through so much stress that you just quit. There was also hazing. You have to shave your head. You can't have hair. It's not even a question. Like, especially when you're on patrol, it's a little more like people take it more seriously. They'll give you so many calls. They'll make you do so many things that they'll get you to quit quick. There was a, an entrance to the locker room that you weren't allowed to use unless you were a deputy who's been there, I believe, like a year or more. So if you're training, you have to go out the, out the station to the back, do some stairs. You would work overtime without getting paid. I've worked 22-hour shifts when I was only doing eight. Never got paid. I did this consistently, never got paid. Sometimes sleep in your car because, you know, you have to be at work in like five hours. So there was no point of going home when you have to be right back. It seems like they use the trainees for their workload so they could just chill. He also saw up close how deputies were continuing to target people of color in the Antelope Valley. They even had a name for it, hunting. So first time I saw hunting was I did ride-alongs 
prior to going to the station. They had units that just cruise along finding crime. I was a part of one of those units on my ride along and we had saw a car that was driving. It had music on. The front window was down and you could see the occupants inside and they were African-American males. I remember the deputy being like, oh, we got one. And they didn't do anything wrong. You can't say tinted because the window was down. The back is not an issue. So he busted a U and then um, there's a part where you had to enter like a probable cause for your stop. And I remember him referencing like the something dangling from the, the mirror or as a PC to stop it. So we got behind him and we, and we, we lit the car up with the lights and they pulled over. And I remember him ordering everyone out of the car. He didn't see anything like, you know, to get people out the car, but some people don't know their rights and they kind of get taken advantage of and they just do what they're told. You could look inside the car, you ask, you don't ask, you search. And it was more just trying to find something. They wanted to find guns, large quantities of narcotics. Angel says making arrests like that boosted a deputy's profile at the station. When you get an arrest, it's considered a stat. That's what they consider it. So when you go out and hunt, your stat total goes up and you're seen as a, you know, like a bigger person. You have 300 stats when you have 300 arrests. That's good policing, you know. But half the time it's violating people's rights. They have uh, suppression teams, summer suppression teams that they have, and that's all they do. Angel says the system is biased in police officers' favor. Body cams weren't there when I was there. It's literally the cops' words versus their words. And it wasn't something that I ever pictured, you know, when I joined. Picturing pulling over people by the color of their skin is something that didn't go on in my head. It wasn't something I signed up to do. Angel says the DOJ's protocol agreement with the LASD had zero impact on how deputies did their work. Some people wouldn't do it, and they would, uh, it would flag, like, the watch sergeant, and they would be like, hey, you guys didn't finish, and they'd be like, oh, fuck, that bullshit, you know, type of thing. So it seemed like they didn't really care about it. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com/theshy to get a fifty percent discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July fourteenth. Subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
Angel Reynosa continued to train on patrol at the Lancaster station. He says the culture wasn't very open. The people who've been there, maybe like five years and up, and specifically they live there. Um, they live in Davie, wherever it may be. They usually are the training officers that are there. And all those training officers eventually move to detectives. You could see that the difference. Even people who are off training, say they've been there a year, they're not even a part of that. It's kind of like you could see it, how they hang out, where they talk, where they go after work. And they also have a say in who becomes a training officer. So it's not kind of like, oh, well, let me test for it. They only pick the people they want. They just kind of want to keep it within their community. Everyone who lives there must patrol there. Anyone that doesn't live there, you're not going to get into the little circle they got there. After about a month of training, Angel was placed with Deputy Anthony Levin. My second training officer, it was instantly, where do you live? Why are you here? You're too young. You know, you don't belong here. You know, you don't even live here. Why are you making that commute? Why are you doing this? On August 18th, 2019, Angel and Levin were assigned to respond to a stabbing. While processing the scene, Angel ran towards where the suspect was last seen to try to figure out the path the suspect had taken to get away. That counts as a foot pursuit. He didn't know that at the time. When he told Levin what happened, Levin told him not to include the pursuit in the police report. I didn't feel right about it. It felt a little sketch. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to turn it in the next morning. This is probably like six hours after because I got home late. My T.O. texted me saying, don't log in, which means like, don't go into the computer. He's like, hey, you lied to me. Like, you put that, you know, you weren't in a foot pursuit, but you were, you know, you did this, you know, like you're done. I'm going to put you on desk duty. I'm recommending you for mediation. But he didn't know I didn't turn in a report yet. Angel was taken out of the field anyway and was assigned to work in the station's jail. He confronted Levin. I had confronted my training officer and told him, hey, I'm not going to do what you told me. I'm not going to falsify the report. You know, you're saying I lack integrity. You know, you lack integrity. You're telling me to do this. And I told him I was going to report him to ALADS, the police union, on my day off, which would have been that Thursday. And he left and he told the, the supervisors in another room. And they brought me in there saying, like, hey, you got to go. You're too young. You got to get out of here. I'll give you the day to think about it. Let me know. So that's the next day I was put on the desk. And they, throughout that morning, they were asking me, like, hey, are you, are you, have you made your decision? You're going to go? You're going to go, right? It was Wednesday, August 21st, 2019. I was working the front desk, and a gentleman came in saying that some people wanted to shoot him. I mean, he was pointing to a specific person, you know, having a backpack that looked like a tactical backpack across the street from the station. And I went back in, and I told the supervisor in the front desk area, I'm like, hey, this guy's telling me this, that. And she's like, hey, you know, put a call in, but don't make it emergent. Put it as a routine call. And routine calls in Lancaster, three to four hours. So much like stuff going on, they're never going to go, basically. And she's like, we don't want to panic if you put, you know, rifle bag or anything like that. And I told the guy, hey, sit in here, you know, don't go outside. Prior to that, I had taken like a forgery report from an older lady who said that she... It was like a scam. I wanted to go to my car to get prior reports that I'd written. So I wanted to reference off of it just to see the like how to write it. Kind of like a template. And uh, so I notified everyone that I was working with, hey, I'm going to my car. 
Just before he was about to head back to the desk, something happened. I was parked in the back by the apartment complex. So I had a bunch of stuff in my hand. That's when I like I heard like a whiz and like followed by like pain. It was like to my right shoulder area. And I didn't kind of understand like what it was. It was like a weird feeling. And then that's when, you know, I hear another whiz. And then that's when I, I like I dropped. I threw everything, you know, down. Everything I had in my hand. I put my back against my car. I kind of just like froze there for a little, like like a second or two. Like what what's happening? Like what's going on? And then that's when I looked over to my right. I had like uh, like a tear in my shirt. It was a small kind of like hole. Oh, and also my finger was bleeding. Then I got on the radio. Uh, take a shot from the north of the Lancaster helipad. Uh, came here in the right shoulder. They might have got there, but from the apartment complex to the north, they got two shots around. That's when deputies started coming to me, and they ended up pulling up a car, throwing me in to transport me to like a fire station. And then from there, we went from the fire station to, to the hospital. We didn't see, like, a bullet wound or anything. Lots of LASD personnel came out to see him, even Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Once he was discharged, he was taken to the Palmdale station and interviewed by homicide detectives investigating the shooting. They were like, let's take a bathroom break. So they all went out. At the time, they were answering phone calls. They were texting people. Levins was taking place at the exact same time they did this thing. And then they come back in, and then they start asking me questions that are more, like, trying to get incriminating evidence out of me or stuff like that. His training officer, Anthony Levin, was being interviewed in another room during that bathroom break. I later found out through his transcripts of that interview that all he did was say I was a liar, that I lied about a foot pursuit, that I lied about this report. I was fabricating this report. So it seems like they just stopped everything just because they got this one report from this guy. My training officer was liked there. He has a lot of respect at the station. Did you trust them? Oh, at the time, yeah, absolutely. I never felt like I was in the position where they were going to start, like, accusing me and all this weird stuff. Throughout the whole thing, I was cooperating with them. I wasn't, like, hiding anything. I wasn't ghosting them or anything. Who do you think shot you? I never knew. And still to this day, I don't know. Like, I feel like the investigation was shut down so soon that the possibility to even finding anything would be impossible. One week after the incident, Sheriff Villanueva stated in a news conference that Angel had made up the entire shooting. The department fired him, then started investigating him. They said all this bad stuff. He confessed, did this, but they didn't arrest me, which is strange. Every news outlet said, uh, fake the shooting, fake the shooting, fake the shooting. It was just too much. And then I got fired on top of it all. Like, what was I going to do now? At least three people, including another deputy, said that they heard gunshots or loud popping noises. No bullets were recovered, but the LASD located at least 10 airsoft pellets in the Angel area was, as well as several metal BBs. He appealed his termination from the department to the Civil Service Commission. On January 15th, 2020, they ruled that because he was still on probation for patrol, he could not be rehired. The next day, Angel was charged with two felony counts of insurance fraud related to a worker's compensation claim and one misdemeanor for filing a false police report. A guilty conviction on the felonies could mean a seven-year prison sentence. Then he was arrested and taken to Men's Central Jail as an inmate. 
He was bailed out later that day and began the long wait for his trial. One of Angel's old co-workers, Conrad Thiem, was also arrested several months later, but his experience was much different. On April 10th, 2021, the alleged IPA shot caller assaulted an unarmed, compliant woman in the midst of a mental health crisis. 32-year-old Sarah Jafari's mother had called deputies for help. Theme and others arrived on scene and approached Sarah. She backed away from them with her hands outstretched. Theme suddenly punched her in the throat, knocking her backwards. Deputies started to use their tasers on her. Then, Theme picked her up by the hair and threw her into his patrol car. Sarah was taken to the emergency room, then placed in jail. The deputies wrote a police report that falsely stated she had resisted arrest, then returned to Sarah's mom's house and tried to make her say that Sarah had a knife. Eventually, the charges against Sarah were dropped. According to the current report, Captain Chuck Becerra immediately alerted the executive staff at LASD to the assault. Theme was investigated by the Internal Criminal Investigations Bureau and referred to the district attorney's office. In May of this year, Theme was charged with two counts of felony assault and one count of filing a false police report. Lieutenant Jim Braden, who supervised Theme at the Lost Hills Station, told the Los Angeles Times that Theme was relieved of duty that day. As of May 2022, Theme was suspended on administrative leave with pay. Angel went to trial just a few weeks ago and was found not guilty on the two counts of felony insurance fraud and guilty of a misdemeanor count of filing a false police report. He thinks the misdemeanor verdict came on a technicality. The jury were submitting questions to, to the court. The questions that they were submitting were, I believe it was like, what is the definition of like report or the legal term of report? And then the next question was like, they wanted to see an interview of, I believe, a SWAT member at the hospital. And the whole interview consisted with what I had said in regards to like, I heard whizzing noises or I heard this. My attorney, Jesse, we were thinking like, hey, they're just trying to think of it as a technical term now about what report means. Their questions, he's like, Dude, these are big. They're literally just looking for the terminology of everything. And he's like, they're probably trying to see if the fact that you said whizzing, but then you put out shots, even if you interpret them as shots, that that's the false report. When the verdict came back, not guilty is on the, the felonies, you know, I, I got teary eyed. Like it was like that was the charges I was really afraid of. Angel, who tried to call out bad practices in the department, was fired. But his co-worker, who assaulted women and is believed to lead a racist deputy gang, still appears to be collecting a paycheck, funded by taxpayers. I want to hear from you. What are some of your questions about deputy gangs? We're going to have a special episode answering questions, so please send them to lasdgangs at gmail.com. You've been listening to A Tradition of Violence, the history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Hosted and executive produced by Cerise Castle, music by Yellow Hill and Steels. We want to hear from you. If you have a question about deputy gangs or the LASD, please send an email to lasdgangs at gmail.com. For breaking news and updates on deputy gangs, 
follow at LASD Gangs on social media. To support Cerise's reporting and for exclusive bonus content, subscribe to the LASD Gangs Patreon. If you're enjoying A Tradition of Violence, please give us a five-star rating and leave a written review. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.